0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Uh, The big meeting tomorrow, though, is uh, counselors are going to vote on a staff recommendation to approve a 1,200-page amendment to the environmental assessment. Now, after that, the next step is to put out tenders for construction, and then Bob's your uncle, and they'll start building this thing within the next little while. Or will they? Not everybody is on side with this, and uh, we're going to get a couple of different perspectives on that on the program this morning. Uh, Joining us is uh, Donna Skelly, the counselor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her perspective. Donna, how are you this morning? I'm great. How are you? Great. Uh, Stuck in traffic, I hear.
2: No, I'm actually at City Hall ready to go into an audit and finance committee meeting. Okay, well, I appreciate you. Perfect.
1: I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us uh, on, this, on this. This has been an eventful few days for you as well. Let me ask you right up front, when the meeting happens tomorrow, uh, somebody, including Paul Johnson, uh, have suggested that this is really just a rubber stamp for Council to move this onto the province for an environmental assessment. Are you going to vote in favor of sending it on?
2: I don't think you're going to get that tomorrow. I think there's a misunderstanding about what this meeting is about, and, and I'm surprised, uh, actually, that Paul interprets it that way. I interpret it differently. How do you do the it? The meeting is well the meeting is actually a result of a motion put forward by councillor partridge back in february we felt as a council we weren't getting enough information and every time we were having meetings the lrt inevitably worked its way into the conversation and hijacked the meeting and we would be hours and hours and hours trying to move through an agenda that gets hijacked by lrt because we felt as a council Uh, that we weren't, we didn't have an opportunity, there wasn't really a platform to seek these answers. Now, there is and was and is an LRT subcommittee, but a number of counselors don't sit on it. And when I have shown up, I mean, the last time I went, I had to sit in the gallery because there just aren't enough seats. So I think what we wanted to do was say, let's have specific meetings for LRT, uh, matters. And so this will be a monthly occurrence. So this, Artificial deadline that we have to pass something tomorrow. I'm interpreting it as an artificial deadline. What I I was under the impression we were simply going to get uh, an opportunity to ask questions. This 1,200 page report landed on our lap last week or two weeks ago, and uh, it's based on an awful lot of now outdated planning. For example, we've canceled the spur line, and the proposal before us includes that and doesn't include the reference to uh, examining the A-line. So already the information in this particular report is somewhat um, outdated, if you will, or or, or not complete. Again, I would suggest that there's no urgency to vote on anything. Any sort of urgency is, is purely political.
1: Well, some are suggesting that uh, that this is something that needs to be done to, to, to meet the timelines that they were talking about, about ultimate construction. Uh, if there is not going to be a vote on that, it's, you know, and you fully understand, Donna, this is going to be interpreted in some circles as those who are opposed to this as simply trying to delay the project.
2: Well, I mean, Bill, I will not vote. Do you really want to vote on the first time you have a comprehensive report and the first time to look at it? after that on a billion dollar expenditure i don't think that that's, that's fair first of all nor do i think it's prudent and i i certainly i i don't see that the the rush i somebody tell me what the rush is there's no rush now if if we defer it it's only till the next month we're having these meetings every month
1: i get that I understand the meeting schedule but uh... my discussion with the mayor yesterday and uh, and with paul johnson the week before that suggested that there is some sense of urgency to get this to the province so that they can give them their approval and move the process along
2: well that's the mayor the mayor is very much in favor of this and he, he hasn't shared that with me that's the first i've heard of that uh... there are a lot of things that happen that council isn't privy to that's the reason we're meeting for the very first time tomorrow with all the players at the table uh... something that should have been done a long long time ago Bill. i think the big issue is people are worried that the money is going to somehow be taken off the table i don't believe that that is anyone's intent in fact i would argue that every single person around the council chamber wants to make sure that hamilton keeps that money in sight it's just where do we spend it i had some conversations recently with people who were really pushing the go again and and you know both you and i have Remember how many times the province has made announcements of all day go service and we still don't have it. I think that's something we should look at, and I really do think that there's an opportunity to uh, speak to both, um, actually, all three party members, uh, leaders, and say, as, as, Premier Wynne has said it's not LRT or nothing. We could perhaps use this in an expanded transit service across the city. I mean, you know where I stand on LRT. I don't like it. I don't think it's a wise decision for the city of Hamilton. I think there's too many unanswered questions. In this report bill, we still don't know how much it's going to cost to operate.
1: No, I get, that. I, I get that. I get that. Listen, we get. I understand that there aren't aren't all the answers that you're looking for. That's not included in this report now. But to, but to move this process along, is it prudent to pour, pour this in here? And I guess part B to that is is where are you getting information that this money could be allocated for something else?
2: Finer pr- Wynn said it's it's not LRT or nothing.
1: I get that, but but. <laughs> But now you're suggesting that, well, let's, let's go spend the money someplace else. I think the government was pretty clear that it's for transit, right?
2: Oh, I would say transit, though. I, I mean, in fact, I would suggest, I'm saying, perhaps go is an opportunity and uh, transit across the city. And I mean really good, high, high order, if you will, um, mo- <clears throat> Excuse me, modern transit, electric buses. <clears throat> I raised the issue once for uh, about free Wi-Fi. It's not cheap, but if you want to see an incentive to get people on a bus, free Wi Fi would be one reason, a better service all across the city. My biggest expense, even with higher uh, with an expanded transit service though, is the costs related. I mean, we have been we, we debated hours over an eighty three thousand dollar expenditure last week and now we're going to just rush through a billion dollar one. That's why I'm saying we can't.
1: But this is not we the still final OK. Haven't been told. This isn't the final okay for the project though, is it Donna?
2: Uh well then what's the big rush? What's this for? I, again this environmental assessment we have questions. They can go back and 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 let us know what um, the answers to some of these questions are. I'd asked for months and months and months. I asked MetroLink for a list of all the properties that were going to be expropriated. They said they didn't have them. They said they couldn't pro- or they didn't. Sorry, they didn't say they didn't have them. They said they couldn't provide it. Now they're le- they're provided. Why didn't we have that before? They weren't just made available a month ago. So- a lot of the information in this report is very concerning. A lot of the technical information for infrastructure underneath the city we have to upgrade our our desperately have to upgrade our, our sewage our water and, and sewage system how much is that going to cost the city i know that the province is willing to replace um, what's there based on what's there but it's the cost of replacing everything else and upgrading it to withstand an upgraded system in in the peripheries on the side streets that we don't know the cost of that and i've heard you know rumors and how do you know it's true that it's millions and millions and millions of dollars if we are close to what Kitchener is, we're talking about an operating expense of $20 million annually. Where are we going to get that money? Our ridership is down.
1: So let me ask it you something, been- Donna. I know your, your time is tight here. Is it your intention right now to get answers to those who so can proceed with this project, or is it your intention to kill the project?
2: Oh, I've never been in support of this. So my intention is to get answers to the project and find how we can best spend the, this money. I don't, I don't support LRT. I just don't. I think it's, it's it's not good for the city. I think it's a poor use of a billion dollars. I don't think we have all the que- questions answered. And until we find out how much it's going to cost to operate, I think it would be foolish and irresponsible to move forward any further on the LRT. I will, however throw myself in front of a train to keep the money in the city, but to use it on transit, and there are other other options to use it for transit, which I think would be a much better investment and would meet the needs of far more people in the city, including upgraded go and a really enhanced transit system across Hamilton.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. In
1: Canada, we've got some concerns here. Now, we've talked about this on Tech Talk, and we've done other segments on the program in the last number of years about access to cable and about uh, we as consumers and what we want to watch from our televisions or our, our uh, devices, of course, whatever the case might be. Well, the concern now is uh, that Canada is being left in the dust by the United States when it comes to online streaming services. In the States, they're seeing things like YouTube TV and uh, on-demand TV, movies, and so many other things, Stars, HBO, Hulu, uh, BritBox. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. In Canada, not so much. Are we getting the short end of the stick here? Joining us to talk about this is Greg O'Brien, the editor and publisher of Cart.ca, who joins us here in studio. Thanks for coming in today, first of all. Oh, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. What, but right off the top, that accusation that we're 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 getting a, a, an
0: inferior product here—do you buy that? Well, we're certainly not getting what uh, they get in the States, that's for sure. Um, you know, we've got an, a limited number of streamers up here. Crave TV is really the biggest one. There are a few others, but they're all really tiny. Uh, Show Me used to be uh, a competitor, but it's yeah, gone. how'd that work out? <laughs> it's gone. Um, but we're, we're, we're a small market. You know, we're 30 million people, 34 million people spread out pretty far and wide. We're the size of California. So when you get those big streamers that you just mentioned, um, we're going to be well down the priority list for them to come here and want to deal with things like foreign exchange and taxes and you know, doing things in English and French and clearing the copyrights for Canada. It, there's, there's a long list of things for them to do before they're able to come here. So there's, there's nobody right there. They're rubbing their hands and saying, boy, I can hardly wait to get into that Canadian market. Well, exactly. And you've got um, our own companies, uh, you know, Bell, Chorus, which owns Mm -hmm. CHML, um, you know, and and Rogers and a few others, um, Quebecor and Quebec, they own a lot of the content uh, for the Canadian market. They have bought the rights for it. They've spent, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to buy content for Canada. So they're the ones in control of the market. So it makes it tough for those streamers to come here and legally have copyright free content.
1: Would would the guys who are already here, the aforementioned uh, bunch that you just mentioned, including our, our parent company here, uh, would they be upset by that? Do they look at that as competition that could be detrimental to them? Because a lot of them are doing pretty well.
0: Yeah, they're they're all doing pretty well, and it it would be competition for them. Let's say you know YouTube were to offer their their basic you know, what it is, it's basically a cable service. Yeah. If they were to come to to Canada, um, you know it could actually be an opportunity for Chorus because Chorus could sell their content to YouTube. Um, you know, for and, and they do sell content to YouTube. They, they own uh, Nelvana, which is a, a, an animator, and they sell content all around the world. So it could be an opportunity for Chorus. For companies like, uh, you know, say, Shaw, or Rogers or Bell, it's a bit more complicated because they compete cause selling their own cable cable TV service, mm-hmm. you know, Kojiko Cable, Bell, Five, they would compete with uh, with them um, on, on a, you know, with the consumer buying at a, at a retail basis.
1: So in circumstances like that, then why why Netflix into Canada? then what did they see as potential here? Well, Netflix wants to go global, yeah,
0: you know they're they're so we're just a stepping stone for them yeah they we were there the easiest first step outside of the u s because similar market you know uh English you know predominantly English speaking. They can make sense of that, and now they've gone all around the world. They're in 100 and some odd countries now, but they've had to go country by country to buy copyright cleared content for each of that each in each country. I would think that's a rather arduous process. It is. It is, and and that's the reason why Netflix in the U.S. is different than Netflix in Canada. You can get much a much broader uh, section of movies and TV stations or TV shows in the states than you can in Canada because it's owned by different companies up here.
1: So, so are are these companies that are on Netflix up here that controlling the content here on Netflix in Canada? Are they restricted by by government regulations, or can can they access some of that other product that we see down in the states? Well, it's not
0: really government regulations; it's just copyright law. I mean, it's you know, all around the world, copyright is sold on a geographic basis, so you have to go country by country to buy all of the windows of content. Um, in each country, so there, it's not really, you know, it's just it's just the law, and it's the same same laws around the world. So if Netflix wants to have a certain show here, um, they have to bid, you know, that they don't make. They have to bid against the likes of Chorus and Rogers and Bell, you know, the primarily the big three. And if they, you know, and they have to buy all of the windows, they have to pay a, a large amount of money to buy the broadcast window and everything else that Chorus and Bell can monetize, but Netflix can't. So it makes it uneconomical to buy for them to buy all of the content in Canada. So they they primarily push their own content or movies that just they have because everyone's looking for an exclusive to draw people in to buy from their service. Yeah,
1: like House of Cards, you know, a, a signature series that's going to – or, you know, Orange is the New Black, something like that that's going to grab people and say, yeah, we've got this. Nobody else does. Yep, That's the, that's the situation here. Okay, so so – Everybody seems to want an individualized package. Uh, there's another myth I want you to address here. Maybe it's not a myth, uh, and that's because uh, we talk once a week when we have this discussion about tech talk and what's happening with uh, televisions across the stage the country. Here, invariably, it's cutting the cord. That's that's that was the phrase of
0: 2016. We're yeah. all cutting the cord, are we? We're not really cutting the cord, no. Um, last year, the stats show that about 220,000 Canadians cut the cord, which is less than 2% of all of the Canadian paid TV households, so cable, satellite, IPTV households. So we're not, not really cutting the cord. Um, you know, people who buy Netflix tend to be video lovers and they add it to their cable package. The one thing that is mi- that is missing, though, from that count are the number of new households being formed that aren't, aren't, aren't subscribing to cable. Um, you know, new immigrants coming to the country, kids coming into university, uh, you know, getting their first apartment. A lot of them aren't getting cable. <clears throat> they're simply, you know, they're getting their broadband subscription because they have to have internet. Sure. Yeah. And then they're sourcing content however they can over the internet, um, you know, legally or illegally.
1: Well, yeah. There's. I mean, everybody wants a better deal. I get that. But uh, and you mentioned about the legalities and copyright laws and situations like that. So is that the bigger challenge then for for the standardized for the uh, the, the the old time TV uh, cable watchers etc. It's it's the online streaming that's being done, and people that just don't they just they're not turning their back on cable. They just don't look at it as an option for them.
0: Well, oh, exactly. And and you know, the the bells and the courses of the world don't mind competing against Netflix. Netflix plays by the rules. What they do mind competing against is free. Um, where people are going to different places on the web that is that are streaming whatever content it is to whoever it is to whoever they want on the internet at no charge. Because the T V is not made at no charge. You know, there are a lot of people that need that, that need to be paid. These are good jobs. Um, you know that that costs a lot of money. So these companies end up having to go all around the world. They like they track where their content's being pirated from, and they stick their lawyers on them and say, you know you, they send cease and desist letters. You know this you do not have the copyright for Canada. please stop um, p- you know, please stop airing it over the internet. Um and sometimes they do they, they comply? sometimes they do sometimes they don't it depends where they are it depends where they can get at them it depends on uh, you know the the treaties the two countries might have depending mm-hmm. you know where these people are sometimes you can't even tell where they are it's very very difficult uh, to you know they call it playing digital whack-a-mole in the industry
1: <laughs> so when that's happening then you obviously the lawyers are getting involved in this uh and you have different incarnations of people that are trying to get that better deal or maybe save a few bucks or maybe not pay any bucks at all Uh, At one time, it was uh, stealing cable. Uh, You know, you tap into somebody's cable line. Uh, Then it was trying to steal satellite signals. Uh, That went on for the longest time. And and, uh, at some point, those companies were able to block some of that stuff. Now we're dealing with the Android box, which seems to be the latest way to try to get that done. Uh, There's a court battle that's going on right now. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, the court battle is over a certain type of box. Um, there, there are a bunch of bare bones boxes, and you can take your laptop and, and find all sorts of pirated content all around the internet. Um, and good luck with all the, sp- <coughs> excuse me, all the spyra- spyware that gets installed on your laptop. But these these new boxes, they have a layer of software built in, and they go out and find the content for you. So when this one website has asked to take this content you like down, um, goes away, it'll find the next website for you. And it presents it to you in on your TV in a very user-friendly TV-looking format. So those are the boxes that they're going after right now in this court case. They've got an injunction. Bell Rogers and Videotron have an injunction against the sellers of these boxes mm-hmm. um, until later this year when the when the court case will, uh, will, will will come to court and whether they decide whether these boxes are legal, like a laptop, searching around on the Internet, or illegal because of the software they have on them. So if, if um. I'm
1: streaming something like that, I, I don't have an Android box, but if I did... And I wanted to watch House of Cards, I'll, I'll, or pin, name a show. it Doesn't much matter. Basically, I'm getting that for free, uh, which is which is the same uh, argument that we had some years ago about music copyrights. Uh, somebody that would take a, a back in those days, it would, could have been a, a cassette recording or something. You know, hey, you know, let me borrow your album. Could you, Greg? Because I want to, you know, want that new album by the Beatles or whatever it was back in those days. And so I'm not paying for it really i'm I'm buying a cassette, but so the government's tried to do something about that by adding a tax onto the cassette and saying somebody these guys still have to get paid yep. the, the Beatles didn't get rich by giving their music away. I mean you have to pay for it <laughs> uh the same thing with television shows, they're actors, and all those people that are listed at the end of movies and t v shows are all being paid or supposed to be paid anyway so how do you how do you rationalize this? How does the Android box rationalize this that no, we can just give it away for free. Uh, we're not going to get away with that. It sounds to me as if they're going to meet the same fate as all these other uh, opportunities that tried to get stuff away
0: and give it away basically to customers for the sake of what? What do you get an Android box now? Three, four hundred bucks. Some of them are fifty bucks. Oh, really? You know, and, and the people selling them are they're look they're looking to make a fast buck. These made these things are made for pennies or dollars in in China. Um, they're shipped here. They're sold. You know, they're sold relatively quickly. There is no customer service. If it doesn't work, tough luck. You know, they're looking to make a, a, a fast buck on selling the box, and finding the content is then up to you and up to the box if it's if it continues to work. And there are always going to be digital countermeasures um, brought into force by. Um, the regular industry or the copyright owners you know so Bell, Rogers you know and then the states Verizon, AT&T Time Warner well they're going to be the same company soon um, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> all of those people they, they fight all of this stuff and the difference though now is that if, you have, if you're able to pirate content you're able to pirate content globally back in the old days if I had an album I could share it with the the number of people that I know, and it was a physical process for them to take it from the album to the cassette tape. So you could pirate it, you know, pirate it in quotes to you know to maybe a a dozen people. Mm -hmm. Now you can you know pirate it to millions and millions of people, and that's where the real challenge is and the difference is this time.
1: Are they going to be able to for anybody who's anticipating going and buying one of these Android boxes? Uh, because they're fed up with their cable bills or whatever the the rationale might be here, uh, can they physically and technically shut those down? For instance, in the same manner that that uh, years ago I knew a guy that actually had uh, he was pirating uh, the the cable the uh, satellite signals and watching movies and things like that and sporting events, uh, but every now and then they'd get shut down. Yep, they just I don't know how they did it, but you know he said oh, I have to go and get this thing retooled or get another one or something. <laughs> And he did that two or three times, and eventually gave up on it. But is that, is that the fate, the ultimate fate of what's going to happen with Android boxes too?
0: Oh, I I think so. Yeah, I mean there's there's always look there's always more pirates out there than there are people trying to protect it. But think about it this way: you know how how often is your uh, are your apps updated on your phone? Quite a number of times. I see Facebook being updated all the time. That's the number of times that they can go after these boxes and make them not work. You know, if there's no customer service around this box, if there's no, you know, company that you can go to to help you out... You know, if, if my Samsung phone breaks, I can go to Samsung, I can go to TELUS, I can go to whoever my provider is to help me fix it. If this Android box doesn't work because there's been an update in the in the hacking software, there's been an update, you know, somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the world of, uh, of of online video, it's not going to update itself. So eventually you'll need another box. And, and
1: the end of the game here, because I've heard this argument too, like, oh, come on, as soon as these guys develop something, there's always going to be somebody who's going to be able to hack into it and, and be able to provide the service for free. But I've looked at it from the other standpoint and say, well, that means there's always going to be somebody from those major companies who's going to try to find out how to block that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be cat and mouse all the way through here. But these, those, the big guys aren't going to give up, are they? They're not going to throw up their hands
0: and say, oh, guess you won. That's that's too bad for us. No, but what the, what they could do and what the CRTC is forcing them to do is make it a bit more affordable. Mm-hmm. So we had Skinny Basic last year launched. Um, and then earlier this year, we had Pick and Pay launched. So you can get... Um, a $25 basic package, and then you can buy channels one at a time. Now, the price of the channel, you can argue about that, that they're a bit too expensive. Um, the companies could be a little more creative um, in terms of getting people. Like, you know, when somebody creates a new household, for example, and they get their broadband connection from Rogers or from Kojikor or whatever, why don't those companies say, look, instead of the 25 bucks a month for the skinny basic, we're going to give it to you for free. You can try out TV. You know, why don't they do that? As a lost leader. As a loss leader, and because nobody
1: people. nobody wants the basic package.
0: Well, yeah, I mean you, you're, you're always going to add on. You can get that over the air. You can get you can get a lot of that popular stuff, you know, online and in legal places right now too, you know. So the, the companies themselves could be a little bit more consumer friendly. Um, you know, that, that would cause a margin hit, you know, in the short term or maybe even the medium term. But who knows? Maybe you pull people into to to, to linear TV by giving it away to them, and then sell upsell them channels later 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 on
1: uh, down the road. Why aren't they adopting some of the same technology? Technologies that the Android boxes are using to try to make it more uh, uh, palatable and maybe more entertaining for for the average consumer.
0: Well, they they kind of are. I mean, it, it depends what you think of uh, think of the technology because it's 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 IP delivered, Internet Protocol delivered, yeah. and that's really at the core of Bell Fibes service, for example. Kojiko, um, for example, is, is different. They're not IP, not fully IP delivered, but they're moving in that direction. So is Shaw. So is Rogers. Um, you know, so it's it It really boils down to the the free aspect you know if you want to get your content for free you know and and not pay that's that's really what people are searching for and and if you are, God bless you, but it does contribute to the decline of the traditional industry and you lose things like your local broadcaster in the long run
1: which is a concern obviously to people like me and and, <laughs> and so that's why I'm supportive of it such as it is but it's like the argument I have with bell telephone i mean years ago I gave up Bell and I went to another company and and they call back about every four weeks. Uh, some guy calls and says, we'd love to have you <laughs> back as a customer. And I said, do you still charge for long distance? Well, yeah, but we have – I said, why? <laughs> Nobody else does. Yep. Nobody else in the world does. Why are you doing that? I said, that's, that's a ripoff. Yep. Uh, you, why don't you use the same – well, we do. And I said, but you're charging me for it. The other companies don't. So, you know, get with the game. Get with the program. The cable companies could do that. The providers could do that if they wanted to.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, uh- I know for my own Go service, I switch to them for my my uh, my business line for my phone, and it I have just the regular residential package, but I can call anywhere in Canada without a long distance yeah, charge yeah you know i don't only, only, I only get a long distance charge when i when I call into the states so those you know those those are out there some of the companies are doing it but uh but you know it it's hard to uh you know you look at these big companies they all have managers and regional managers and vice presidents and and senior vice presidents, and they all have quarterly targets to hit whether it's money whether it's subscribers doesn't matter what it is and they're trying to hit those targets because it affects their personal like their life their job so they're trying to hit those targets however they can
1: But your point, though, I know we got to wrap this up. The lost leader idea—it's like that, you know, the old movie Miracle on 34th Street. You know, send your Macy's customers to Gimbels if they have that, and Macy's doesn't. You—that makes a happy customer, and they'll they'll come back because they say, "Hey, you know what? You were a straight shooter with me."
0: Yeah, and and that's exactly why Rogers, for example, is including Netflix on their set-top box, and so does Kojiko with their TiVo box. You know, they see it as a complement to the system, and to just use their technology to access what you want to access, and it makes it a happy customer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: study published uh, today in the Canadian Medical Association Journal says that uh, there are 355 firearm injuries a year among youth and children. One child suffers a gun injury every day, one a day in Ontario. Uh, Yeah, it is troubling. Joining us to talk about this is Astrid Gutman, senior author of the study, staff pediatrician pediatric medicine with the hospital for sick children uh dr gutman thank you so much for the time it's good to have you with us today
3: oh thank you mr kelly thanks for
1: having me on the show bill works for me don't worry about that (laughs) mr kelly was my father uh first of all before we get into some of the statistics that you uncovered as you uh, did the research for this what, what was the motivation for going down this road in the first place this is something that we don't often talk about here in canada
3: No, um, exactly, and that was one of our motivations. Uh, We've been doing a number of studies on uh, injuries in children and youth, Um, some um, focused on uh, different at-risk groups, Um, and we're very fortunate in Ontario to um, have data not only on injury deaths but also on injuries that... um, uh, result in children and youth going to emergency departments and hospitals. And uh, and those statistics specifically related to firearms um, are have really never been looked at in Canada.
1: We tend on this side of the border uh, to rather sit smugly and say, isn't that terrible what's going on in the United States? Thank God we don't have a gun problem here. This report tends to uh, contradict that mindset.
3: Uh, yeah, we totally agree. I, and uh, to be honest, I think you know all wealthy nations look good in this area compared to the U.S. But if you take the U.S. you know out of the equation, um, you know in Canada we we rank fifth actually in high income countries in terms of uh, firearm mortality. So I think we don't want to be smug about it, and we want to better understand you know where the problem lies and uh, and then do something to prevent.
1: Did you did these numbers surprise you as you started to get this information?
3: Uh, they did surprise us. I mean, again, you know, because there were no numbers before, yeah. uh, but I, but I, we did, you know, the the sort of the statistic of, you know, one child or youth a day in Ontario, you know, I mean, that's uh, very high. Um, just for your listeners to know, just for a bit of context, too, um, you, you know, 75% of those are unintentional. So mm-hmm. those are accidents that happen. And then 25% um, of the injuries that we looked at were um, the result of being a victim of assault. Um, And again, I think, you know, important to understand that and I think moving forward in terms of what you do about those things, um, you know, uh, uh, preventing accidents and preventing assault are probably require probably different strategies.
1: Yeah, the fact that 75% of these are unintentional, I guess, is probably cold comfort to the victims, though. Uh, I mean, a gunshot is a gunshot when it comes down. But what strikes me about this, though, doctor, is that, as I say, we don't talk about, even from the medical profession, I can remember years ago, uh, one of the first times I went to Boston, one of my favorite cities, and I'm, I'm going from the airport to the, uh, to the hotel, and we passed a Mass General, and, and the guy was telling me, he says, yeah, that's where all the gunshot wounds go. And I said, you actually have a specific hospital for that? <laughs> uh, and I thought it was mind-boggling. Well, we don't have that in Canada, but uh, from, from the standpoint of, of, of primary care providers, like in hospitals and emergency wards, uh, it sounds like they're seeing an awful lot of this, but we don't seem to hear about it much.
3: Right. That's true. I mean, I guess uh, just to be fair, you know, anyone, um, I mean, we we do have trauma centers, of course, in our our major cities, and they would be seeing this. But, you know, this is spread and especially, you know, the unintentional ones are more common in uh, children who live in rural areas. So so it is, you know, any one hospital may not be seeing, they're not seeing one a day. Um, And so it does get spread out. And that's why I think it's really important to do these studies where you summarize it and say, you know, what's the overall burden? in our in our population and not, you know, so that you're not having to rely on one emergency department or, you know, one hospital to, to make those observations.
1: No, absolutely. I understand that. But the, the number is mind-boggling nonetheless. Uh, but the study actually goes and peels back a few more layers and actually gets into not just rural and urban, but actually into demographics here. Uh, and at the same time, uh, those who might be more likely to be uh, victimized by this.
3: Mm-hmm. It does. So when we looked at, um, so for unintentional injuries, um, you know, certainly, so rural uh, children are more likely uh, to be the victim of a firearm, um, an unintentional injury. Uh, In both cases, uh, males, much more likely. Uh, When we look at the victims of assault, however, we find that it's more likely to be an urban phenomena um, and more likely... um, uh, although, in, in general, uh, our newcomers to this country are less likely to sustain a gunshot injury. When we looked at some subgroups, we, we found that um, children and youth who were refugees and those who came from certain parts of the world were more likely to be victims of assault. And then a very strong finding around you know, those living in low-income neighborhoods, more likely to be um, a victim of uh, firearm assault. So I think very you know important in terms of thinking about you know how do we make our community safer um, you know and, and really partnering with high high risk communities uh, to reduce um, you know victims of assault yeah,
1: and which goes along with the conversation we've had about a number of different urban areas of course and 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 public safety and access to firearms and things of that nature uh, but with those that are 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 victimized by this by accidental shootings uh is 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 the Rationale here, is is the reasoning for this essentially because they have access to guns or they're, they're not stored properly, or that uh, somebody misfiring or somebody pointing it at somebody? or Because if everybody follows the rules who is a gun owner, uh, this isn't supposed to happen.
3: Right. So that's an excellent question. And unfortunately, the study that we did doesn't, we, so we didn't have access to the information about whether these were licensed guns, even the location of the injuries. Unfortunately, our database is very good, but doesn't have some of those details. Um, so we are trying to, you know, in follow-up studies, um, better understand that. And I think it is really important. So, you know, are these young children getting a hold of guns that aren't properly stored versus are these, you know, 14, 14- year old to have a license, um, you know, I mean, we, we do allow minors to have gun licenses, and they just are not using them properly. Are these um, BB guns that you, for which you don't need a license? Um, and, and again, these are, um, you know, children who own these guns and are, you know, having accidents with it. And I think it's really important because the way that you're going to deal with, you know, the problem is going to really depend on that. So we are trying to get better data around that so that we can, this was just really the first study to kind of illustrate that. This is definitely a problem that we need to pay attention to and then I think the, the devil's really in the detail around you know some of these cases um, and we'll certainly be you know trying to do more work around this area so that we can have you know effective strategies.
1: This must be one of the frustrating aspects of gathering data though doctor. It's, the more questions you answer yourself, the, the more questions you're asking of, of the data that you just received in response to that and that seems to be what the the end result of this report is It raises an awful lot more questions doesn't it?
3: it does. And, you know, again, I think people sometimes get frustrated with us that we can't provide all the answers at once. And we just, you know, we have to do what we can do. And we'll, we will continue to try and do work that, you know, is going to be relevant. And we'll try to help, um, you know, uh, the larger community uh, decide what needs to happen. Is this about better legislation? Um, You know, is this going to be about a lot more education um, and all of that? So we will do our best as researchers to try and make sure that, you know the data that we have in the analysis we do are relevant and that they're you know we're grateful that they the message gets um, spread by by you in the media so uh, to sort of move the whole thing forward but it takes time sometimes to to really you know b- best to understand uh, you know problems and and then how to solve them
1: well sure because we've listened and and some cases maybe even taken part in the debate that we see going on in the states right now about, uh, about gun ownership and, uh, and about screening processes, etc., about who should be allowed to own guns, who can buy them, uh, the, the, the methodology that's supposed to be used to obtain a gun and things of this nature. And as I say, we, we, we just assume that our laws here are, are okay, but now I've got some questions about that. Uh, you know, how does a 14- or 15-year-old get their hands on a firearm? Uh, and as you said, in some cases they can do that legally. Or, well, are they trained properly? There's a lot of questions involved here. Yeah, agree. So we go from here. What, what's what's the takeaway with this information? I mean, uh, this is this is to, to be sure. This is eye-opening data, and, and, and I, it's started a conversation across the country today. Uh, so check that box. You've already done that. That's that's great that we're having that conversation. But but where would you like to see this information applied to to, to try to improve the situation?
2: Yeah so
3: again I think uh I think it starts the conversation I, I do see the strategies around the unintentional um the accidental injuries being different than um those uh around the victims of assault so again I think we are already having conversations certainly in in larger cities around um Keeping communities safe and, and the kind of community action that needs to happen to make sure that, um, you know, again, we don't have gun violence, that that is not, um, you know, that that's not what our youth are being exposed to. Um, so I think that's one piece and I think that's happening already and I think these kind of data can always, you know, add a little bit of fuel to the fire that this is important. I think on the unintentional side, the Canadian Pediatric Society has actually just released a statement today, um, and they're very interested in, you know, advocating Um, They're trying to, you know, again, um, advocate, you know, at least for the the medical community that uh, families should, um, you know, that that physicians should screen and see if there are uh, firearms in the home and if there are that, you know, that, that uh, parents know about safety measures. There's been some work in the U.S. to suggest that that's quite effective. Uh, but again, I think we need to, you know, do more work, uh, you know, with our police partners, even with the coroner's office, to just better contextualize these these injuries and, and really understand, you know, again, is this about, um, you know, BB guns and not well regulated and thus we need regulations or are these legally obtained firearms where it's an issue around, um, you know, uh, basically just enforcing um, what we do have as regulations around, you know, safe storage.
1: It's uh, maybe a poor analogy, but, I mean, if I want to get a driver's license, well, I've got – but you know, there's a process you have to go through. There's a test you have to write. There are things that you have to learn about the rules of the road, et cetera, et cetera, and you have to buy a license for it. Uh, I'm not so sure what the process is for obtaining a firearm but because I know, for instance, in some rural areas, and you included those, of course, in your report – about the the statistics from the rural areas as well. Uh, it may just be something that's handed down, you know, because a lot of farms, et cetera, have firearms on hand because of vermin and things like that that can be around. Uh, we get that, but are the people that are using those firearms properly trained in, in how to use them?
3: Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, we do have, you know, our regulations do require safety training, applying for license. We do do security screening. So, again, I think it's really important for us to understand, is it those processes are, that are breaking down or other ones? Because, And, again, I think that's really, you know, and, and I think we're going to have to do more work about that. I think, um, you know, again, engaging with the police is going to be really important because it may be that all of those things are working well. Um, but, again, it's around, you know, the BB guns not being, um, you know, needing a license. It's, it's, it's hard to know, and I think it's really important that we figure that out.
1: When you've done the this, this study on this and the research for this, Doctor, uh, you talk about the number of people that, that are victimized by this. Uh, how many survivors? I mean, are some people that have, have recovered from this or are living with this or resulted from permanent injury from this? Have, did, did you, were you able to track that as well?
3: We, so we were able to try, so 6% six to 7%, depending on the year, result in death. So, I mean, that's terrible. We did not in this study, because we already had a, a lot to do for one study, didn't look at what the long-term uh, consequences were, but we have a follow-on study that we're going to do um, that will look at exactly this. So how much disability resulted in that? Again, to me, it doesn't change. It just, it, you know, again, it just helps on the advocacy front. Um, you know, we certainly know that children can be very severely injured and disabled from a firearm injury, and, you know, we'll put some numbers uh, to that, but, the you know, the fact still remains, you know, the, the numbers that we've shown are probably, you know, the best first step in terms of uh, more advocacy for around this area.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
2: CHML.